Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Chung. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very excited that we can finish uh, our discussion with Dr. Jean Ackman today. She has many more interesting pearls for us, so I'm excited to get started right away. And for those of you that are listening to this episode, uh, we may just note that you may be well served to first listen to uh, the prior episode, which contains part one of this interview with Dr. Ackman, and we'll pick up where we left off with part two here. You know, Dr. Dr. Ackman, I think that a lot of people, when they think about MR, they don't necessarily see it as having something of value for the lung itself and for the pulmonary parenchyma. Is that something that you would say is, is true? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I think it's a real misconception that MR has no value in the lungs. I, what I hear uh, said a lot in conferences, MR is not very helpful in the lungs because there's no signal. And while it is absolutely true that air has no signal, pathology has a lot. And so what you actually have with MR is a black background or non-signal background, which is actually there to highlight any pathology. And that is why um, pathology is actually apt to pop on the image and, uh, or stand out. Um, and that is why it so easily sees consolidation and, and it's, it, you know, the, at least the larger nodules for now, but we do see nodules that are even four millimeters when the images of our, are, are of sufficient quality and uh, with certain pulse sequences. Talking more specifically about like imaging features that may um, dic- can kind of change how you would uh, formulate your report. Um, when it comes to contrast enhancement of certain lesions, um, could you talk to the audience about uh, certain things you're looking for which may um, make you recommend either a resection or more thoracic, uh, thoracic surgical uh, follow-up or whether you just would say uh, get routine surveillance in a year or so? Sure. So um, we use dynamic contrast enhancement uh, in all of our protocols. There's no reason not to because whether you do the old-fashioned post-scat at five minutes or you do dynamic contrast-enhanced imaging out to five minutes, it takes the same amount of total time, but, but you get more information. So at 20 seconds, you have sort of an angiographic phase, and then one, three, five, spread it out. So we've, we've made specific diagnoses of hemangiomas in the mediastinum with dynamic contrast-enhanced imaging. Um, we've, we've favored fibrotic tissue, fibrosine mediastinitis and other fibrotic lesions and even certain forms of FFT, 
by how slow the lesion enhances. We've favored things like carcinoid or paragangliomas if things enhance super vigorously. So basically, and I think we're gonna learn more and more because this is a tool that hasn't been used as often in the chest. It's been used in the belly for, again, a couple of decades, but basically I think we just have to keep looking and we're gonna learn more about um, how it helps. Um, granulomatous fibrotic tissue, lymph nodes, you know, the areas that are um, hyalinizing aren't gonna enhance as well. Um, so all of these different uh, features of MR, the T1 signal, that, or of a lesion, the T1 signal, T2 uh, signal, and the dynamic contrast enhanced pattern all add diagnostic specificity. And I think people have to remember when they do an MR um, that MR not only is going to show us any change in size of a lesion, so it can be used for follow-up and morphology, but to really drill down and milk the, the study for that added tissue characterization information. And that, again, can really help a surgeon figure out whether to go in or not, or whether it's safe to just follow, or whether no follow-up is needed at all. But sometimes with any kind of cystic lesions, even within the thymus, you might sometimes see a thin rim of yeah. enhancement around it. Is that, a, is that a normal thing? Yeah. Um, do you recommend follow-up, or do you just straight call it benign in those cases? Great question. So basically, because of the higher soft tissue contrast of MR, um, we see things even in simple unilocular cysts uh, on MR that we wouldn't be able to appreciate on a CT. And so it's exceedingly common. Pretty much virtually every, or nearly every, unilocular thymic cyst that we've imaged um, has a thin, smooth, enhancing wall, um, yeah, and we expect like it less, less than two millimeters. One to two, one to two millimeters. You just eyeball it. Though. Yeah, yeah. eyeball. Yeah, three is pushing it a little, but mm -hmm. I've seen inflammatory lesions go away with with uh, walls that are three. But that that is a, a, a normal feature, as far as I can tell, and I will be writing this up eventually. But um, you know, I've been tracking all of our studies for all this time, and. Um, so far, none of these lesions that are unilocular and have thin, smooth walls have turned into anything else. It's not to say that there won't be one case of a two-millimeter thymoma on the wall of one of these cysts, but it, that's going to be thymomas are rare to begin with, and then that's going to be even more rare. Um, and so, yes, it's normal. If if you have any doubt, you follow it. And actually, we have been following our thymic cysts simply because our surgeons this was new to them, and they actually wanted five years of follow-up. You know, annual to ensure that nothing has changed, but so far nothing has. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a feeling one day we won't be following them pretty soon, in fact. Yeah. And since um, adjudicating thymic lesions benign from malignant is um, one of the most common indications, I think that some of our listeners might not necessarily um, do this on a daily basis. Could you try to just explain when you are confronted with a thymic case and you're differentiating between a thymic cyst or thymic hyperplasia from a malignancy, whether it's a, a thymic epithelial neoplasm like a thymoma or a lymphoma or something else, um, how is it that you approach the case and what um, specifically are you, are you looking for in evaluating? And okay. how do you use the chemical shift ratio? Maybe you can sure. explain a little about yeah. that. Right. Okay. So um, this is a whole lecture in and of itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll try to limit it as much as I can. Um, all right. So for thymic hyperplasia, we're looking for uh, suppression of signal on the out-of-phase image. So standard, it's just like in an out-of-phase imaging in the, in the abdomen. We do an out-of-breath hold and an out-of-phase imaging in the chest. We see, sometimes we qualitatively see it. We don't even have to do a measurement. We look for a drop in signal. But if I don't see the drop, um, on the out-of-phase image, then what I do is um, p 
put um, ROIs on and do either a chemshift ratio or I think better yet a signal intensity index at this point because it's less prone to error. You're just measuring fewer things, simpler math problem. Um, I'm sorry, could you please just explain the signal intensity yeah, ratio? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, basically it's a subtraction and division problem. You're, you're subtracting the um, out of phase ROI number from the in phase ROI number. So you're seeing how much the signal dropped in relative terms, and then you're dividing that um, final number by the in phase uh, signal, or by the in phase ROI number that you get. And then you times by 100 to get a percentage of signal dropout. So it's very much like evaluating an adrenal uh, adenoma. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no need then to standardize the skeletal muscle or anything like that. Right, that's the beauty of the signal intensity index. But you can only use a signal intensity index calculation if uh, your in and out of phase images have been acquired with dual echo technique. If they've been acquired separately or the parameters are different in any way, um, you do need to do a self-correction by putting ROIs on the, uh, not, it could be any healthy looking muscle in the chest wall. It doesn't necessarily have to be the paraspinal muscle, mm -hmm. but you want something to self-correct in the same image. Um, and that's your chemshift ratio calculation, which is a little different. But both of those can be found in many different papers. And uh, Aoka and Takahashi were the first to report this, and they really got the ball rolling. I think we're instrumental in getting the ball rolling with use of MR in the chest. I mean, that really woke me up to it as well. So, and then the Priola uh, duo um, put forward the signal intensity index uh, version of things a little bit later. Mm -hmm. so do you use a specific signal intensity index value, a cutoff number oh, yeah. below what you consider something mm -hmm. reliably benign? Right, so the Priola paper spoke of a, a signal uh, dropout uh, percentage of 8.92%, which is a little too precise uh, <laughs> and probably not realistic, and I'm sure there's variability. So I'm, you know, 9%, 10%, I want to see about 10% signal dropout on the out of phase image. And if I'm feeling a little shaky, it went, one thing that um, one finds if one does this a lot is that the thymus atrophies at different rates, um, uh, different parts of the thymus atrophy at different rates. And so they get, it gets fatty intercalated at a different, different rates throughout. And as a result, you'll get different signal intensity measurements in different parts of the gland. And so which number do you believe? So I would say go with your, the, the worst number, uh, go with the least suppressing tissue and base your judgment on how to manage the patient on that, not the most. The other important thing is that if we don't see suppression on the out of phase image, it doesn't mean that we're not dealing with hyperplasia. There are young patients who just have insufficient microscopic fat in their thymus, certainly teenagers for sure, but even young adults, we, we wrote up a little uh, case report it was the last case report published in JTI, actually, before Dr. Phil Wuzzell said farewell um, to case reports uh, for JTI. No other case that report is. could follow that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like, do I take this as a compliment or an insult? <laughs> we were the last yeah, ones I, to get I in there. it's a compliment for sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but basically, the signal intensity value ratio has a very strong negative predictive value, but right. not necessarily. Right, so we have to be careful. Look at the, right, exactly. So look at, look at the thymic morphology, look at the age of the patient, look at other factors to figure out whether you want to follow the patient by MR, maybe in three months and spread it out if things are going well, or whether the patient needs to go to surgery. 
uh, we've watched thymuses involute over time, and even thymic cysts uh, involute over time as well. Um, and um, follow-up is a reasonable thing to do if, if something's indeterminate but probably benign. And again, this is a new way of thinking. It's, uh, people would be, would be like, oh, MR is so much more expensive, but it's really not. It's only one and a half to two times more in terms of reimbursement than a CT, at least in terms of Medicare reimbursement rates. And again, if, if the value that it brings is, is far worth, is worth far more. Okay, so we talked briefly about um, how one evaluates for thymic hyperplasia. Um, but basically, what, the reason we get refer, uh, referrals for MR uh, for thymic lesions is because by CT, uh, many thymic lesions are isoattenuating to muscle, they, and they all look pretty much the same. And we can't discern cystic from solid lesions if the cyst contains hemorrhage or proteinaceous material. Um, and that was leading to a lot of referrals to surgeons for uh, unnecessary thymectomy, as we alluded to earlier. And so MR, you know, is great at discerning cystic from solid, and that's very easy to do. And anyone who's had a residency we, uh, and done MR in any part of the body would be very capable of, of doing that and, and, and would be aware that um, T1 signal can be variable with cyst depending on whether the cyst is serous or contains hemorrhage or proteinaceous contact. The T2 signal is usually pretty hyperintense, not always. It depends on the blood products a little bit. Um, and then the wall should be thin and smooth, but as we spoke about earlier, it might, might enhance. And then we can use the dynamic contrast enhancement to help triage, be, you know, dis distinguish between thymoma and lymphoma. Mm. Um, it's not, I'm sure there's some overlap, but at least low-risk thymomas tend to show more rapid time-to-peak enhancement with washout over time than high-risk thymomas, thymic carcinoma, and lymphoma. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a waiting thing. It's not, we can't necessarily make the diagnosis, but another thing we can do when we're trying to distinguish thymoma from lymphoma is look for lymphadenopathy because mm -hmm. uh, your typical thymoma, certainly the low-risk uh, or non-advanced ones, will not have uh, spread to lymph nodes. Thymic carcinoma tends to spread on, um, to lymph nodes. Lymphoma, obviously, you're often going to have lymphadenopathy elsewhere, not just in the prevascular space with lymphoma. And that's also a helpful uh, discernment uh, and we'll technique. Kind of, we'll just run of the mill mediastinal lymph nodes. Mm, will they have similar enhancement characteristics to thymoma or soft tissue characteristics? You no, know, I've been looking at this. Yeah. I don't. I think we need to look more and actually quantify this, but just anecdotally, I, I tend to think that lymph nodes tend to, I've watched them, they enhance over time out to five minutes. And in fact, I know that because when we do our dynamic contrast enhancement mm -hmm. and we're looking at lymph nodes in the hilum, mm -hmm. initially it's very easy to tell the gray lymph nodes from the white blood sure. in the uh, pulmonary arteries, but over time, by about five minutes, there's an equilibration, and the signal in the lymph node, because of enhancement, is very similar to the blood pool at that point. So yeah, so lymph nodes in general tend to enhance uh, gradually over time. Mm -hmm. um, another reason why DCE or dynamic contrast enhancement is helpful, because you can miss the window to even see the nodes pre and post. If you just did imaging at five minutes, they'll start sure. to blend with the blood. How often do you do MR for other miscellaneous indications, such as screening patients that might be high risk for malignancy in the chest, or patients that have a known diagnosis, let's say of a lung cancer, where the question is evaluation of extent of disease, um, invasion yeah. of the mediastinum, right. brachioplexus, yes. chest wall? Yeah, those other indications come up as well. Um, they're less common. Um, we, we regularly follow a patient with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome who is at uh, risk for um, developing cancers 
on the basis of radiation exposure. So she gets screened for uh, cancer with uh, MR instead of CT. We screen uh, for endometriomas in people with endometriosis. That happens far more rarely than I would have expected, actually. We can screen for um, teratomas in people with the NMDA receptor antibody. Hopefully I have that right. Um, and then uh, we screen for paragangliomas um, in people with the SDHD mutation. And uh, so th those come up fairly regularly. Uh, we seem to have specialists who see patients with these uh, genetic disorders, and so they, they're sending patients for MR. And the interesting thing about that is they knew about MR, that MR had value with this, and have been sending patients. I didn't have to teach them that. So they, and, and the, another point is that each time I thought, oh, I, I've made a discovery, or, you know, MR, like, you know, um, can do X or Y, I go to the literature, it's already there. So, so much of it is that we aren't even aware of all the great literature out there about what MR can do in the chest. And I've been trying to not only read, but share that information um, with colleagues and at conferences, because um, it's, a lot of it's already known. We're, we just need to harness it. Have yeah. you had any interactions with your colleagues over at Boston Children's? Like, do they pick your brain about your chest MR protocols, even for their pediatric patients? Oh, I see. Well, they have a specialist over there in Ed Lee, so he doesn't need me. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I help where I can, and I do sure. get emails from people um, at institutions across the country um, asking for our protocols, and mm -hmm. I. I very happily share because I want this to grow and multiply. It's, it's not not something that we're trying to kind of protect. You know, this mm -hmm. is it's about patients. It's not about you know our our practice at MGH. So, yeah. for listeners that may be trying to institute MR protocols in their institution, I believe that you have an article um, that maybe we could just reference for them that highlights some of those protocols. Oh sure. Um, so um, several years back, I wrote um, a practical guide. I don't even remember the exact title anymore, but a practical guide to non-vascular thoracic MRI. And um, it basically is a nuts and bolts article about how to build a practice, how to develop protocols, how to interpret these examinations. And the reason I did it is because I realized that up to that date, I, there are textbooks that would have a picture of a bronchogenic cyst, but there, there was no information about how do you actually do this? And it was only by doing it that I developed that, that skill set, but I thought I'd like to spare people uh, 10 years of time or more uh, and uh, share that nuts and bolts information. And I actually think it, it's helpful not just for chest MR interpretation, but for other parts of the body as well. Just know everyone expects you to just learn it. And I, the goal was to take some of the intimidation factor away. So, uh, just for the listeners out there, the title of that is A Practical Guide to Nonvascular Thoracic Magnetic Resonance Imaging uh, by Dr. Ackman, JTI in 2014. Thanks. You've kind of hinted at it a bit throughout the talk, but um, why, what, what is it about MR that makes it a subject matter or modality that becomes uncomfortable for a lot of radiologists? Is it, yeah. um, uh, is there just this misconception of long scan times? Is that the primary thing? Right. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that during training, you know, a lot of time is spent talking about MR physics, and I think it's intimidating to a lot of people who may have forgotten their calculus, including myself. And, you know, it just seems like magic, and all of a sudden this Fourier transform, you know, does this, that, and the other thing. And um, the fact is that 
one can develop a practical understanding of MR without knowing much MR physics, just having just a bare sense of, of MR physics. And I, I'm living proof of that. And it's, it's really a, a matter of just knowing the basics of how to interpret um, what T, you know, T, T1 hyperintensity means versus T1 hypointensity, T2 hyperintensity, T2, what you know, fat saturation is, what fat suppression is, and again, what, what dynamic consciousness enhancement brings to the table. It it's doesn't require a lot of knowledge of physics. And in terms of scan time, the scan times come down as proficiency increases. And that goes um, from the standpoint of the technologist and the radiologist. Um, there's a learning curve. It, it takes some initial investment and perseverance to, to get things to where you want them to be, especially in a big institution. But we are starting to do pre and post contrast examinations um, of you know the full chest uh, more routinely in 35 minutes. And I think times will come down from there, uh, especially as the software and hardware of, of MR continue to improve. So I don't worry about the, the scan time too much. Mm-hmm. There's, there's great hope as far as that goes. And I think it, just lack of familiarity uh, is, is a huge part of it. And, and I think what we, um, when we uh, did a survey, this is another JTI article actually, mm-hmm. in which we looked at the experience of a highly specialized group of uh, cardiothoracic radiologists, we found that there was extremely little experience with thoracic MR, very little uh, opportunities to perform and interpret it. And I think what was happening over the past 20 years was sort of a vicious cycle. First, you know, 30 years ago, the quality of MR imaging wasn't very good. We didn't have the rapid techniques we do now. So I think MR was rapidly discarded into the trash bin of history, at least for a while, because people were, because of the challenges of cardiorespiratory motion, um, a lot of chest radiologists didn't see how it was going to be very helpful. Understandable. Uh, but then the technology improved, and now, now we're playing catch-up um, to where we should be. What happened was, because chest radiologists didn't value it, they didn't recommend it to their colleagues to do uh, for patients, and the colleagues didn't know anything about what it could offer, and so they wouldn't order it, and so no MRs would get done, and there'd be no experience, and then there'd be nothing to teach with, and it's just this negative cycle. But now we're, we've reversed that negative uh, cycle wheel, and it's now a positive cycle wheel. Do you have any advice to any young radiologists or trainees who are listening to the podcast today? Probably a couple things. First is you, you think you know where your life is going, and you think you, you could predict, and, and um, I think many times we... we we don't know. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, here I thought I was going to be a high-risk OB sonographer, and I'm doing chest radiology at MGH and with a focus on MRI. Um, the consistency there is that I, I'm, I've always been very focused on uh, and uh, enamored with uh, imaging techniques that uh, are at lower risk of harming patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do worry about the ionizing radiation exposure um, that we uh, give our patients. Both MRI and uh, ultrasound uh, to this date have shown uh, that they do not harm patients. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we'll find out something later that we don't know now, but uh, we've been doing MRI for 30 years with no known harm to patients, uh, and even a fetus, at least if we don't give IV contrast. So that's pretty extraordinary. So you want to always keep an open mind, for one thing. Two, I'm going to quote one of my favorite radiologists at Yale Medical School who inspired me to become a radiologist. His name is Dr. Jack Lawson, he was an MSK radiologist with a great sense of humor and a love of life. And I, um, we've, we've kept in touch a little bit. But I remember him saying to me, 
that if you want to be successful in research, pick something that no one is interested in and run with it. And I never realized, you know, that was so prescient because it, I didn't do it on purpose, but nobody in the chess world, or very few um, outside of uh, uh, Japanese groups like uh, Dr. Ono, uh, some Germans like uh, Pluterbach and Bieter and Kausor, very few, it, certainly in the States, uh, have been interested in MR. Uh, Warren Gefter is an example, Schiebler, those are some here. But the vast majority of uh, chess radiologists um, had no interest for a very long time. So I just ended up in this field, um, not on purpose, it's just uh, my training sort of led me there a little bit, and then um, just noticing that there was a sort of a black hole um, in, uh, in, in that we could be uh, helping patients that um, sort of drove me to help move chest MR forward. You mentioned earlier that you anticipate scan times may be decreased in the future with improvements in hardware and software. Are there any new or forthcoming technologies in MR that have you excited in particular? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about uh, ultra short TE imaging. Um, I've seen some uh, examples. We have, it's still a work in progress. It's not built into most magnets. So I tend to dumb down our protocols to our least, uh, our least advanced software because I want it, our protocols to be available on every magnet to be uniform. Because mm -hmm. you, if you have a different protocol on every magnet, that makes it even harder for Texan to control image quality. Mm -hmm. um, so one of our MR machines has that capability right now. Um, it's sort of built into the research side of, mm -hmm. of the magnet. So I actually haven't had the opportunity to do it yet, and I look forward to that. It's on the ED magnet, so it's going to still take a while. It, it has it brings out the signal in the lung parenchyma a bit more than some other sequences, so that has some potential. But I will say that the standard chest MR imaging we do, and especially the post-contrast dynamic uh, sequences, show pulmonary nodules awfully well. Um, it's already known and documented in the literature that MR shows 100% of pulmonary nodules a centimeter or greater. Um, provided it's done well, 100% of consolidation. It can also show very small nodules, and we routinely will pick up a form, we, we will see four millimeter nodules on uh, chest MR. We see them now without UTE, you know, imaging. And so the point there is that we need to be looking. It, they're there. Mm -hmm. um, looking at all four corners of the film, looking in the lungs. And I think if we keep practicing that, we'll develop our eye and we'll develop a threshold for calling them and realize that you can even see the fissures on, on MR. But the thing is, when I first started, I didn't realize that either. But the more you look, the more you see. It's like any other imaging uh, domain in radiology. And so I think it, it's a matter of, you just kind of almost have to dive in and just start doing it and be responsible about it, do it well and care. One keeps discovering, you know, it, it's, it's very helpful even now um, with lung disease. But yeah, so UTE, that may be very helpful. What else? I think just faster, faster, better. Um, and ultimately more push button is, is what we need because mm -hmm. I think it does take an investment to develop a, an MR program and, and have high quality uh, imaging, especially at big institutions. And it, you really need somebody who cares a lot and is going to champion it in, in the group to kind of move it forward. The ultimate goal, of course, is to have these studies go unmonitored and be performed well um, and fast. And uh, that's going to take some more work. Push-button technology would help, but the vendors have to become increasingly motivated to keep improving the techniques that handle cardiorespiratory motion. And, and they are, actually. There have been great advances in terms of just um, radially acquired imaging and motion correction. And, and we can actually do get pretty high-quality free-breathing imaging 
of the chest with both T1 and T2 weighted images right now um, with certain radially acquired techniques, both um, Fassman echo techniques and gradient echo. So those exist now, um, not uh, um, in every software package though. Um, so you have to have the latest one, but those are gonna be helpful um, and lead to more push button abilities. And then I, I, I'm hoping that as the volume increases, uh, the tech schools will be uh, motivated to, to teach this area of the body to the technologists so it's not so daunting to them when they have to do their first case. Because when, when techs are anxious, they're not going to perform as well and they're also, it, the exam's going to take longer. So um, various things need to happen to make it easier to adopt. Are you developing any new protocols uh, for MR for the future? Um, yes, uh, we uh, one of the newest protocols that is under development is a tracheo Bronchomalacia protocol, MR protocol, and, and um, we've actually started doing dynamic imaging of the trachea and the main stem bronchi using very simple techniques that have been around for a very long time. Just um, We've looked at it with steady state free procession imaging, so called uh, Trufis von Siemens or Fiesta on GE, and this is just free breathing, watching people do tidal breathing force deep inspiration and expiration and coughing. And in real time, you can watch the trachea getting bigger and smaller um, in uh, most commonly the AP dimension, but sometimes transversely as well. And it has to be more sensitive than fixed deep inspiratory and expiratory uh, CT because especially if monitored, you can be assured that the patient is um, performing maximal effort. And um, you can catch the trachea during any phase of uh, expansion and contraction, as it were, in a way that one can't with static imaging. And um, Dr. Phil Boisel has done a great job at emphasizing the need for dynamic uh, CT imaging of the, the tracheobronchial tree for this reason. And um, however, it's not always done properly at different institutions. And in an ideal world, we'd, we'd want to get uh, have multiple opportunities to image the trachea by CT, but that would uh, incur a higher radiation dose uh, to the patient, whereas MR has no radiation and, and uh, can do this very, very easily. It's, it, with not, so steady state free procession is one way to do it. Another way is with uh, a non-contrast 3D MRA sequence. You can watch the trachea in real time getting bigger and smaller, and you're literally just looking at a black hole getting bigger and smaller in the wall and you know, the adjacent tissues. But um, it's a no-brainer as, as far as I'm concerned, and so far it seems to be working well. Do you see any novel applications on the horizon for MR? Absolutely. One application that just needs to happen down the road, although MR has to get faster first, we couldn't handle the volume, is um, at lung cancer screening. How wonderful would it be to be able to screen for lung cancer and not potentially incur more cancers in the process with uh, ionizing radiation? Um, do, do you think that there will be a day when lung cancer screening is routinely done with MR? Yes, I actually do. Um, I think right now, again, we, we couldn't handle the volume because MR is not fast enough to screen the, the sheer volume of patients that need to be screened. Um, but on a selected basis, we do it even now in patients who are extremely radiation averse or um, for whom radiation is a, a hazard. For example, uh, the rare patient with certain, a genetic disorder like Lee Frelmany. Uh, those kind of people um, are best probably best screened by MR instead of CT, and we've been asked to do it by our thoracic oncologist 
um, without even suggesting uh, it as an option, our thoracic oncologist uh, thought of it. In your development of an MR program at the Massachusetts General Hospital, did you encounter any challenges or obstacles? I th- sure. Um, I think when you're trying to put forward something relatively new, you're always going to encounter some resistance because people are comfortable with what they know and what they're doing. I think it's human. Humans, are, we're, as much as I think we're all interested in learning new things, I think we're, we tend to be adverse to change just in a more guttural kind of subconscious way. It takes a lot of openness uh, to, to move forward. And, and I did encounter some resistance when I was trying to uh, build our MR program for understandable reasons. But I think that actual, that challenged me to become more knowledgeable, to be more aware of the uh, literature, to just dig deeper. And it, it, it kind of, I think having naysayers actually can make you better. Uh, it makes you work harder. It makes you, it, you, you feel that challenge and you want to surmount it. And um, I think it actually made me better at what I do. And, and uh, you know, just also to, you know, it, it made me want to address the, the issues that were being brought up and counter the resistance with real facts and, and literature to, to back up um, what might have started as intuition. Thank you so much, Dr. Ackman, for, uh, for a wonderful interview today. And uh, thank you for stopping by Mount Sinai. Well, it was an absolute um, privilege to, to be here. And uh, thank you for having me and, and uh, just an honor. And I, I'm, I hope that these words will be helpful to um, someone out there. <laughs> we hope to have you back in the future as you continue to publish more. And you know, as there's more developments in the field, it'll be great to have you back and talk to you more. Thanks Thank so, you much. so much. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.